Please join me in John chapter 16. John 16 today as we talk about questions. And oh, we have questions. In this life, we have difficulties. We have things that we don't understand. And so we have things we would like to ask. And sometimes you might hear somebody say something like this. Oh, when I get to heaven, I've got some things I'm going to ask of God. And sometimes they say it with a bit of an edge to it that I'm going to put God on the witness stand, as it were. I'm going to ask him a few questions. I'm going to put him on the spot. But in reality, I don't think it goes that way when you and I enter into heaven. First of all, I think that our knowledge is going to be more complete when we are in heaven glorified. We won't be omniscient like God, but I think we'll have a more full understanding. And certainly when we're in heaven, we'll share God's eternal perspective on the things that we faced here. But the real reason why I don't think we're going to enter heaven asking questions is because of what we see in Revelation 1. John, who wrote this gospel that we're studying here, the one who was in the upper room with Jesus talking about it here, he also had that encounter in heaven with the exalted Jesus. And in the presence of exalted Jesus, John does not describe himself as, I had a few questions. In fact, here's how John described it. When he saw Jesus in all of his glory, he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not, for I'm the first and the last. John had to be reminded not to be afraid in the presence of his Savior, exalted. So no, I don't think in heaven we're going to be firing off questions. But I do believe here we do ask questions. Now, I could be wrong about heaven. When we get there, if you get to ask questions, you can tell me. Jimmy, you were wrong about that. <laughs> That's fine. But right now, we live in the here. Now, we have questions. I do think it's absolutely appropriate and okay for us to ask these questions of the Lord. Our occasion here, we're back in the upper room with Jesus the night of his arrest, the night before he's crucified. The, the mood in the upper room is heavy, though Jesus has given great teaching. He keeps telling his disciples, I'm going to leave you. I'm going back to the Father, and they are full of questions. And I think there's going to be some help for us in how we handle our questions with the Lord. So let's go into our text. John 16, let's pick up together in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you'll not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We did not know what he's talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, uh, what I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. The disciples, the upper room, they have questions. And this wasn't just a little slight intellectual query. I'm just a little interested in a few things. No, again, sadness is in the room, great teaching, but Jesus is going somewhere. He keeps talking about this. Is this some kind of parable? What's he mean by this? And this is very concerning to them. Again, a great help for us as we consider the questions that might trouble us. Several principles for ourselves this morning with our questions. First of all, God is aware of our questions. That's good news, isn't it? God is aware of our questions. That's verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So they're asking, what is he saying? What's he mean by going away to the father? What's he mean by a little while? Now we sympathize with the disciples, don't we? Because they couldn't understand this. Now we have the vantage point of living after the cross, 
after the resurrection, we have the entirety of the New Testament explaining all these things. And so we already know the answer to this. A little while and you'll see me no longer. That's Jesus saying in just a little bit, I'm going to be arrested, handed over to the authorities. I'm going to be crucified and buried. So in a little while, you're not going to see me. But in a little while, you're going to see me again. So on the third day, I'm going to be raised. And what they don't know is he's going to spend 40 days with them before he ascends to heaven. But of course, they couldn't grasp any of that. Even the idea of the crucifixion, though Jesus had talked about it and they had seen Roman executions, they just could not fathom that this would ever happen to Jesus. But Jesus understood their question. And here's good news for us. He understands your questions as well. Those things that are troubling you, you really can ask those of the Lord in this life. But I would say to us that we must ask with humility. We do recognize when we're asking God questions, we are the created and we're talking to our creator. And it's merciful that our God would love us enough to actually communicate with us. And indeed he does. But consider God doesn't owe you or owe me any information at all. He's God. We're not. And yet he loves us enough to communicate. Hebrews chapter one tells us that he has communicated with us best of all in his son. But we add to that, we have the scriptures themselves that God is speaking to us in his inerrant, infallible word. God has given us the Bible that we could build our very lives upon. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us understand these scriptures and to apply them to our lives. And so think about it with me for a moment. We all have a lot of questions, but let's consider how much he has already spoken to us and all of that of grace. For instance, God has already told us things like this. How did we get here? And God taught you in the Bible, you were created. You are not random. You didn't just somehow show up. God created this universe by speaking the word and that universe was perfect at the beginning. But then we ask this question, what happened? What went wrong? And in the Bible, you're told went wrong, a terrible fall, that first sin in the garden. And we've been infected with that and inherited that sin nature all these years since. So we know how we got here. God created this universe. We know when it went wrong, there was a terrible fall into sin. And then we think, well, what's God been up to? He's been working out his plan of redemption to reconcile the world to himself through the death and resurrection of his son, that anybody who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus can now become a child of God. He even tells us in all the things he's teaching us what he's gonna do next, and that is restoration of all things, that Jesus is going to return to this earth and he will judge unbelief and sin, and he will raise up his children and glorify them he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth and there'll be no more problems ever again forever. And so he's taught us so much. But nevertheless, we have some remaining questions, particular things that hurt us and trouble us. And so you might have questions like this this morning. Why am I still so lonely? Or why do I have this disease? Or why is my child so sick? Or why was somebody allowed to hurt me like they hurt me? Or why am I struggling in some ways that I don't see other people struggling? Why is God allowing me to have this struggle? Or how about this one? Jesus, when are you going to come back? This world's in a mess. If you could just come back this afternoon, that would be wonderful. Why won't you go ahead and come back? Listen, God is aware of your questions. Your questions do not offend him. Certainly asked in the right way. In fact, you should go ahead and ask them. Here's an encouraging thing for us to understand that God raises these questions ahead of all of us. 
So those questions, why, and those questions, how long, these God already raised for us in the Bible. Consider this, Job chapter 13. Job, with all of his sufferings, he asked questions. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face from me and consider me your enemy? Consider that. God inspired that, that you would have that in your Bible, that question about God. Or how about the psalmist in Psalm 10, verse 1? Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And of course, God does not keep himself away from us in times of trouble, but it feels like it at times. And that question that probably you've asked, God's already way ahead of you. That's in the Bible so that you can see other people ahead of you have asked this. So God presents the question that you're going to ask long before we ever came on the scene. In other words, you and I are not asking any new questions at all. In fact, every generation, people come on the scene and they act like I'm asking a question nobody's ever asked before I arrived on the scene. That problem of evil. How could a good God let evil exist on the earth? And some people, what shallow faith they profess to have, they say, I'm just leaving that. If God's going to let this happen. But listen, in the very pages of the scripture, those questions for millennia have been asked. In fact, here it is. God is not in heaven hoping you won't ask those questions. Or he would not have put these very questions in the Bible. You can go ahead and you can ask these things. And you ask and you say, I, I may not have a satisfactory answer to all the specifics of why I have these particular problems in my life, but God has told me enough that I know he's good. He's told me enough that I know he has a plan. I don't know how this pain fits into it, but I know he has an overarching plan and he's good and I should trust in him. So the questions that come to our minds, no matter what it is, they're not insurmountable. And whatever question we can come up with, they're not valid excuses for unbelief, but God brings them up from men of faith throughout the Bible. Men like Job, men like David ask questions like this. Men like Jeremiah ask questions. Men like John the Baptist ask questions and others. So just making the point, as we think about our questions, God understands them and God is aware of them. Here's another principle as we consider our questions. God has already been speaking to us. The question is, have we been listening? So many things that trouble us, God has already addressed these things. Maybe not the particular one that you have, but he's addressed things just like that. But the question is, have we been listening? So here we're back in the upper room with Jesus. They have questions about, what do you mean by going to the Father? What do you mean about in a little while? But in reality, Jesus had already taught them the specifics of what was about to happen in Jerusalem. Before they ever got there, at least on three occasions, Jesus told them, here's precisely what's going to happen to me when I get there. Here's one example, Luke 18. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. Listen to the, listen to the exact details. Jesus says ahead of time for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. How specific Jesus was. He had already told them. Now they're asking these questions and they just can't get it. Let me ask you this. In the questions that you have, is it possible that some of them you don't understand because you have been inattentive to what God has already told you. 
So you think, I, I come to church, I'm in sermon after sermon, I barely pay attention to those. Is it possible that God's been answering your questions through the preached word and you just weren't locked in on that? Or maybe it's in your life group. You think, I'm there, but I haven't really been plugged into the study of God's word. Or maybe you've been neglecting the Bible study of other people and you, and you just missed out. God's been communicating, but you haven't been there to get it. Or maybe in your own personal walk, you think, I, I know I should be reading the Bible. I just never get around to it. And God's been telling you everything that would help you process and understand the difficulties of this life. And you've just not been attentive to him. What have you been paying attention to that would be of greater value than God's word and the things he's saying to you? I've never wanted to be one of those people that when disaster happens and we go through those disasters and heartbreaks, I've never wanted to be one of those people that goes into that time and then tries to figure out, all right, where's God? Where's God now? I've let myself be distant from him. Now I got to go find God in the midst of my trouble. No, I'd rather be one of those that's been walking with him in the good times and the bad times so that when the next bad time comes, Lord, I know exactly where you are. I don't have to go find you because we've been walking together. It's what Jesus has been talking about here in this upper room discourse from John 13 through 17, that we get to abide in him, in prayer, in the word. We need to be those people. God has been speaking to us. But again, we're thinking about those questions that trouble us. Here's another word for us, another principle. God is going to give you the information that you need. He may not give you the specific answer to that specific question and that unique pain that you have, but he's going to give you the information you need. So here we are in the upper room. They're asking about timing and they're asking about what do you mean by going to the father? And notice how Jesus answers, not exactly what they wanted, but it's what they needed. Verse 20. Here's the answer to their questions. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus doesn't give them greater clarity on the timing they're asking about, but he gives them what they need. He gives them perspective and he gives them assurance. The timing things are about to work out. We're mere hours from the arrest and everything else is going to unfold tragically and sadly. They're going to have that, but they need assurance that God is at work here. They're about to see Jesus arrested and crucified before their very eyes in just a little while, like he said. But in just a little while will be the third day when Jesus will be raised and they'll see him again and he'll talk with them and eat with them and comfort them. He'll teach them and even commission them. Likewise, with all the things that trouble us and the questions that we have, God understands that. He will give you the information that you need. God knows that you and I don't always have the ability to comprehend what he'd be telling us in the first place. In fact, he knows sometimes it's not good for us to have the information in advance. I've thought about this. I've been a Christian since I was 17, and I'm really glad God did not tell me at 17 everything that I would experience in my life from then until now. Now, if he had told me at 17, I'll have moments like this, and I'd be preached to a wonderful church family, I'd think, oh, I'm looking forward to that. But he'd have to also tell me all the heartbreaks that I have between 17 and now, and I think that would have scared me. I would have dreaded each day. Oh, is this the day that that bad thing's going to happen? Is that day? I'm glad he wouldn't have given me that type of information. Our God also knows that if he were to tell us things, we just don't have the ability in some cases to really grasp what he is doing. 
Now think about this, when, when Joy and I were living overseas, we lived in a place where the language we were learning, there, was no cla- there were no classes for that language. And so we had to do what we call barefoot language learning. We had a book that told us the questions to ask. We then hired a college student there who spoke some English, and we would, we would then ask him to teach us the things we needed to know. So week one, we've got to learn how to shop. And so we learned two phrases right off the bat. Do you have, fill in the blank, how much is it? So do you have, and how much is it? So I want to go practice this. And so I left our, our courtyard and headed down the street. I can still picture it to the bus stop at the corner where they had a little kiosk there where they sold Coca-Cola and other little snacks. And I tried out the language for the very first time. And so I asked him, do you have Coca-Cola? It sounded like this, Colaton hast me. And the guy behind the counter said, ha. I'm thinking, hey, this language works. I just put together those sounds they told me that says, do you have Coke? And this guy says, yes, this is working. I'm on a roll. So then the next line, how much is it? Chan Pulistone. And then the man said something I'd never heard. Sadzum. And I thought, I don't know what that is. And I felt so foolish. I asked two questions and had the complete inability to understand the answer. I hadn't learned my numbers yet. What's the man going to tell me? So I'm feeling really dumb. And he pulls out a calculator, thankfully, and he punches in the numbers. And there I see, oh, I can read those numbers. Here's the other dumb part of it. Then I pull out the wad of money, and it's different colors of currency and different shapes and sizes of bills. And I hold them out like a preschooler. Like, you, how, much, how much do you need from here? And I'm so glad that man was honest on that day and did not try to rip me off. He took what he needed. But, but here's the point. We can be like that. We can ask questions of God. And God looks at us, you, you don't have the vocabulary for this. My ways are so much higher than your ways. Your question's fine. I'm not offended by the question. You just don't have the ability to know all that I am doing here. And so God is merciful. He understands what we're asking. He's going to give us what we need. But instead of giving them a play-by-play, he alerted them to sorrow is coming next. But there's joy on the other side of the sorrow. And so Jesus gives them now some perspective about joy. So let's talk about joy. We've been talking about our questions, but let's talk a moment about joy. Jesus was on the cusp of unspeakable agony. And yet he tells his disciples about joy. Five times he uses that word joy and that word rejoicing here. Hear these verses again, key in on that word joy. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You should underline that. No one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you until now. You have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus knew that they did not need that information again that he had previously told them. They would see that soon enough through the arrest and trial and crucifixion. But what they needed to know was that Jesus had a plan that there's going to be suffering, a part of what's coming up next. But that's not the end of it. There is a plan. There's going to be joy, great joy on the other side. But first, the sorrow would be real. 
I think it's hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples there in the upper room, hearing of Jesus leaving, but then in a matter of hours, seeing him arrested, knowing Jesus had the power to stop all that, but to see Jesus give in to an arrest. And then that trial and the torture pulling on his beard and a crown of thorns. And then to see him crucified, everything would have seemed so bleak and so hopeless for them. That's the sorrow Jesus was cluing them in. This is what's on the horizon for you in just a little while you're going to be tormented as you see all this. All hope will seem lost, but it won't be. Great joy is just behind that on the other side of this sorrow. What's going to look like a terrible loss is actually going to lead into an eternal victory. My death is going to lead to the forgiveness of your sins. Resurrection is going to be the defeat of death. Ascension is coming where I'm going to be at the right hand of the Father where I came from, and I'll be interceding for you and for all the believers who come after you. He's been promising them, and after I go, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to bring joy on the inside of you. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit includes joy, and he's going to give them power for a worldwide mission that he's going to give them. And, of course, he's also taught them through these Gospels that Jesus said, I'm coming again, and he's going to come again in great glory and great power and make the world right again because Jesus will come to judge the world. And he'll come to bring about restoration of all things. Revelation 21, 4 says, this is what we have to look forward to. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The disciple's sorrow will soon evaporate into unshakable joy. And don't you love it? In Jesus' own sermon here to the disciples, he brings in his own illustration. And Jesus, the master teacher, always did that. So we who are pastors, when we're preaching, we, we like to use illustrations to help people stay with us and also to try to bring about clarity about the point. Well, Jesus is the master teacher. Remember, he taught so frequently in parables and he gave analogies like this one. And here he talks about a mother in anguish, in pain, in a time of sorrow, we could call it. But on the, the aftermath of that is going to be a precious baby. And I bet as we read those words now twice this morning, you ladies who have given birth, you resonated with what Jesus said. You're like, oh my, was there ever pain? But joy on the other side. I can tell you, I've been in the delivery room three times and I can tell you that joy's agony was worth it, right? Now it's funny for me to say, right? <laughs> Easy for me to watch. Like, yeah, it was worth it, joy. But no, she would say the same thing. And, and every mom in the room who's given birth, you, you would say the same thing, you know, oh, Terrible pain. In fact, ladies, we, we bow to the pain you endured. We agree from what we know, that's gotta be the worst pain on earth. And so you have that, but we've watched you and you've gone through that. And then, but you would say, oh, all, all worth it. All worth it that I have this precious baby. And so here we're told disciples, it's gonna be excruciating. What you're about to experience in my arrest and beating and crucifixion and burial, it's going to be devastating. But on the other side of that, I'm telling you, you're going to have joy, full joy, like you've never imagined possible. Jesus had a plan. In fact, Jesus operated by that same sense of joy as he himself went through the brutality he's about to go through. Hebrews 12 tells us about this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how did Jesus face down the cross and endure the cross? We're told here through his own joy. 
Joy in accomplishing the plan of the Father. Joy in bringing glory to the Father. Joy in accomplishing the salvation of all who would turn from sin and trust in him. Knowing that there be congregations like this all over the world for all time because of what he did at the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And he tells us that I'm going to give you a joy that nobody can take from you. A joy that will be unending. In fact, notice verse 2 again. A joy that the world can't steal. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Listen, and no one will take your joy from you. What a promise. Right now this morning, do you have joy in Christ? Or have you let your joy be stolen? Shouldn't happen. Nobody really can take it from us, but we can, we can give it away. We can let ourselves get so discouraged by the things happening in the world around us. We can become so disappointed. We can hear about all the evils of the world and we can get so angry. We can become fearful in this life about all the what ifs, what if this happens, what ifs. And we can forfeit the joy that Jesus said nobody can take from you. This is really important for us as we think about how do I process the news? How do I process all the things happening in the world? So as believers, we need to stay informed, of course, but at the same time, maintain our biblical perspective. We understand that we're going to have troubles in this life, but there is joy. And with all the things that disappoint us and anger us out in the culture, we have a mission. And we've been told how to carry out this mission until Christ comes again. But let me ask again, has anybody taken your joy from you? There's a time in my life where I let this happen to me, where, where momentarily I did lose my joy this was years ago in my first pastorate in Alabama. I remember it was on a Friday afternoon distinctly uh, for a pastor, especially in a church, single, star, uh, single staff pastor of church like that. You're super busy on the weekends. Everybody else is getting ready to relax on Friday. That's when it's ramping up. And I remember that Friday, Joy was in the Christian bookstore getting something. I had Hillary in the car with me as a little child. And I had the vantage point of seeing when she might come out of the store, but also the supermarket that was off to my left. And I was watching people coming and going out of the supermarket. And I saw two guys, two, what I'd say, two good old boys came out of there, happy as could be, with a case of beer. They were ready for their weekend. And I have to tell you, in that moment, I was jealous of those two guys. Had nothing to do with the beer. It was that these guys were completely carefree going into the weekend. And I had a heavy load on me getting ready for Sunday upcoming. But as I assessed it, I thought, wait a minute. This is not right. Why, why me as a believer in Christ? Why am I envious of these guys who give every appearance that they don't know him? Why am I jealous of them? And I started playing out. Why, why have I lost my joy? And, and part of it was, yes, I think some exhaustion. But I think part of it was I was disappointed in some of the believers around me. They weren't walking with Jesus as they ought to. They weren't passionate about the mission like they ought to. They, they weren't seeking to be fruitful. They weren't trying to reach out. All these things that was, were make, causing me to be so frustrated I was losing my joy. And God helped me correct my thinking in that moment. Like, wait a minute, but, but I am walking with Jesus. I should be experiencing joy. This joy I preach about, if I'm walking with Jesus and have the Holy Spirit in me, I should be experiencing joy. And so that was a real turning point in my life. A real marker in my life. No longer, yes, I'll be disappointed in things. Yes, I'll be heartbroken. But I can't let other people's lack of faithfulness cause me to lose my joy if I am walking in faithfulness. So I'm still going to care. I'm still going to preach and teach patiently and all that. But I can't let anybody take my joy from me. I, I think it's like when we're on airplanes 
And they tell you, put that mask on first if you need it before you help somebody else. I can't let other people take my joy if I'm supposed to be able to help other people find the source of joy. And it's found in Jesus Christ. Don't let anybody take it. Jesus said, they can't steal it from you. Don't offer it up to anyone. And here we have this promise of prayer here. And this is where we'll close. Look at verse 23. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, listen, that your joy may be full. Jesus indeed will help us in our sorrows and our many questions. He's going to bring us joy. And a lot of that joy is to be found in intimacy with him. Specifically in prayer here, when we meet with the Lord with this great privilege of prayer, we're going to experience a peace that passes understanding. When we meet with him in prayer, we're going to experience hope in our times of grief. We're going to see progress even through our pain. We're going to see God's glory as he advances his kingdom on earth. We're going to see his promise of full joy realized in our lives here and certainly anticipating an eternal joy that can't be shaken. But see it, there's a connection here between our joy that he promises and our prayer lives. So as you examine your heart this morning, you say, I, I, I don't really feel a lot of joy here. Is it possible that that lack of joy could be connected to that lack of prayer? He's promising me full joy and he's mentioning, mentioning this great privilege of being with him. Am I missing out on that because I'm not spending time with him? And listen, if you feel like you're struggling in your prayer life, most Christians I know say they struggle in their prayer life. Something hard for us as human beings, we're so easily distracted. We want to be busy. And, and it's such a key move though, that repeatedly we're commanded into the wonderful presence of God. So, so maybe you're wondering, well, how, how might I return to a life of prayer? How would I begin a life of prayer? Can I suggest this? Let God speak to you first when you, when you get aside to meet with him. That's what the Bible's for. So prayer is a conversation. So open up the Bible first and maybe read a chapter or two of the scriptures. I, I would suggest if you're starting out, stay in the New Testament or the book of Psalms and, and hear, hear from God. What's he saying to you through his scripture? And then respond to what he's just said to you in the scriptures. This will keep you out of a prayer rut where you're praying the exact same phrases every time. This is a conversation. He's going to say fresh things to you from each, these passages that you're reading in the morning. And then you begin your conversation. Well, God, that is amazing what you just taught me. I mean, here, if you were reading this in your devotional time, Lord, Lord, I've let my joy slip away. Lord, would you rekindle my joy? You can talk to him. Lord, I've got questions. And, and Lord, Lord, thank you, though, that I know I can trust you. I don't have answers to some of, some of these things, but I know from your word that I've been reading, I know that you're good. I know you have a plan. I know you'll never leave me. I know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can talk to him. There is so much joy to be had as you walk with him day by day in his presence. Well, we began this morning with a question about your question. What, what, are, my, what are the things that I would like to ask God? Let's end with a question for you, not from you. Here's the question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus and have you experienced this joy that we've just seen in the text? Have you experienced this freedom that we just sang about from our exalted Jesus? Have, have you experienced that? Here's how you can do that. Today, you can come to know Jesus, but it begins by first acknowledging that you have been a sinner like the rest of us. 
And it expressed, it, it expressed itself in ways like this. You've been living your whole life away from Jesus, pursuing everything but Jesus, and you need to do what the Bible calls repenting. It means you were heading in the wrong direction. Today you see that you've been in error, and now you turn and you face Jesus. I'm not going to run from you any longer, Jesus. Now I run to you. And, and we might ask the question, why Jesus? Because nobody's loved you like Jesus. Jesus took your sin and he died for your sin upon a cross to make atonement for your sins, to cleanse you of sin. And he was raised from the dead. Makes it very clear he's the one you should trust. He's defeated death. He can give you eternal life. And so your move today is acknowledge your sinfulness and say, I don't want that anymore. Jesus, I want you. Would you forgive me, Jesus? I want to receive the free gift of everlasting life that you're offering me. And I want this joy that you say you offer to me. I pray that you'll trust in Jesus today.